0: Today, we're going to look at the title of the the sermon being the first sign, and no doubt the Bible is full of those signs and symbols, reminders. I think of like baptism, um, the Lord's Supper, the dove, fire, even wind representing the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost, and many more. There are a lot of signs that are littered and scattered throughout the Bible. This is one of the first ones, one of the first ones to be revealed, and these signs should point back to something. They should be reminders of something. When we see them, we ought to be reminded of what God has promised, of what he has done. When we watch, when we observe a baptism, when we partake in communion, the broken body and the, the shed blood of Christ, when we see the wind and the waves even, they should remind us uh, of, of the Lord's goodness to us and others. So we're going to read the passage here in a second, but I want to look at three things. I want to look at, and they're printed somewhere in that bulletin, um, command, command. Covenant and covering, right? It wouldn't be a good sermon here at Oaks Church if it didn't have alliteration. Here it is right off the bat. Command, covenant, and covering. We'll look at God's command to Noah, the covenant that God makes with Noah, and then the covering or the uncovering of Noah's sin, right? (laughs) Um, let's dive in. I want to read Genesis chapter 9, and we uh, use the ESV translation here, so that's what I'm going to be reading. There are Bibles in the back. I think if you don't have one, grab one in the back. Take it home with you, literally, if you don't have one. Let's read Genesis 9. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens. "...upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea, into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed." For God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, Behold, I establish my covenant with you and with your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh." And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah and from these, the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took garments, laid it on both their shoulders and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see the, their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from the wine, from his wine, and knew what his youngest son had done, he said, curse be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you, brothers and sisters, pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Um, Every bit of it is useful for us, for teaching, for correcting, for training. Um, Lord, leading in righteousness. I pray this morning that you would use me as a vessel in your hands, Lord, that you would speak through me. As I said before, whatever comes out of my mouth, it isn't useful, Lord. If it isn't true, would we... As the body be wise enough to spit it out, Lord, would the rest be glorifying to you? Uh, Would you be be brought glory, Lord, this morning here? Pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. All right, so uh, I'm going to go right into it. Uh, Otherwise, we will be here through lunch. Um, First. That first point, command, right? The first seven verses. Ed said this last week, and I want to bring it back up. Through the time that uh, Noah and his family were on the ark, the Lord, at least, there's nothing recorded. The Lord is silent, is he not? There are no commands. He doesn't speak to Noah, but now he speaks commands. They're off the ark, and he speaks really just two commands that I want to bring out this morning. Number one, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. And the second is, and it's not written specifically like this, but do not take life. Do not take life. And I want to work through these. First, the, uh, the command to be fruitful and multiply. So no doubt the earth would have been empty at this time, right? And God commands Noah and his family to fill it. But not just to fill it, but this includes the command to have dominion over it to subdue the earth. So Noah, in a sense here, we see him as a new Adam, right? He's blessed as God's image bearer, given the same command. That Adam is given. Be fruitful. Multiply. Fill the earth. Rule over it. Of course, this command includes having children, right? And I think implicit in this is not just to have children, but it's to have children and to teach them the ways of the Lord. Have children and teach them the ways of the Lord. Instruct them in righteousness. You're to tell them of the Lord's faithfulness. Pass down the story of God preserving life so that he might carry out his plan of redemption. And I think, so this hits me as a a parent, the call to us as parents and and anyone that has a a younger person that looks up to them, model trust when we feel insecurity, doubt, fear, when the storms of life come, remember that nothing can thwart God's plan, nothing can take us from his sovereign hand. And then kind of in that, I want to notice too, I want to point out how the Lord works through families. I know Chris is going to get to this a little bit next week. It's evident in Genesis and elsewhere. And at the end of the passage, we're we're going to see God cursing one line of the family because of the sin of the father. But God clearly works through families. Um, As I was researching and, and preparing for this, a study by the Billy Graham Institute popped out at me. What percentage, you don't need to shout it out, but what percentage of Christians in America do you think have at least one believing parent that's in their home? What percentage of Christians have at least one believing parent in their home? I was blown away. The number is 94%. 94%. Globally, they estimate between 90 and 94%. But what does that mean? It means a huge part of the way that God works out his plan of redemption and passing that on to one generation to the next is it's through families. He commands fathers and mothers to pass down his story of redemption. Sometimes this even goes the other way, too. It goes back from child to parent, doesn't it? but it's through families. I think on the flip side, we'll see a little bit later in the passage, the the vices and virtues of Noah's children become the vices and virtues of the generations, of the children's children's children. I want you to think about this. I need to think about this. What do your kids see? What do your children see? What about your grandkids, your nieces and nephews? What about the young children of this church? Do, they, do my kids come downstairs early in the morning to find me mindlessly scrolling through social media? Yes, yeah, sometimes. <laughs> do they see anger? Boy, more than I want to admit it. Do they see me giving over? Do they see us giving over to the desires of the flesh? A lot more than we would like to admit. Or do they see you waking early to study the word and pray? Do they see lives transformed by the gospel? And I think this might be one of the most significant ones that we can show and demonstrate do they see lives that model repentance well? Man, I try to do this, but it's hard. Kids, I'm sorry, Dad messed up. Will you forgive me? How powerful is that when you see someone truly turn and confess their sin, acknowledge that they're wrong, and praise the Father? I, that would be my hope and prayer. And I think the command to know isn't really any different than it is to, to us. Be fruitful, multiply, have dominion, and I believe multiply your faith. Now, tucked in here, um, there's a little blurb about God permitting the eating of animal flesh. Now, animals up to this point would have been used for sacrifices. Remember, Cain and Abel sacrificed Cains from the ground, Abel's from, what does it say? The firstborn of his flock. So the taking of animal life leading up to this point would have been permissible, but for sacrifice rituals only, and now animals are given, all animals are given as food. But God throws a caveat in there. He says, but but he prohibits the consumption of blood. And it's not explicit in there, but a lot of the commentators I think believe that blood might have been part of a pagan ritual at the time. And so I I think something we can pull from this, and this may not be the only thing, I don't mean to say it's exhaustive, but I think this is part of setting, being set apart from culture. I think this is part of God saying, I don't want you to be like culture, I want you to be different. You are different, you are set apart. This joke is barred from somebody else, but I don't know what it means in terms of eating a rare steak. Do not ask me. I do not know. (laughs) I do like a good rare steak. I I can't go all the way into it. I don't know. But then we run into a command, and it's a command to not take life. This hits me as particularly interesting at this point, because God has just taken the life of nearly every single man and beast. Anything not on the ark, he's just taken the life. And yet here he commands not to take life. So just a couple of thoughts. He allows for, and he even commands the taking of life for murder. He doesn't just require this of humans, though. He demands of any human or animal that takes the life of a person. So remember, just at the beginning of this passage, uh, animals are now, actually, there's a fear of man in animals. Whereas up to this point, I I don't think there would have been. There's a fear of man Um, Sin destroyed that perfect fellowship that all living creatures enjoyed. And now the beast of the field likely would have sought to kill man. So what does God command? He commands that any who shed the blood of man, their blood be shed. If you kill a man, you must lose your life. Now what do we make of this? Because admittedly, at first glance, this seems a little bit like a, that's kind of a low view of life, right God? That the response of a loss of life would be the loss of another life. How does that value life? But I, I, I really do think a deeper examination shows there's more to it than that. I think it shows how highly God actually value, values life. See, he so highly values it that the penalty for taking the life of another would be the one who takes the life would lose their life too. That's how highly he values life. Life is so precious that God puts the ultimate penalty in place to punish anyone anyone who would take life. See, only God has the authority to take life. Only God has the authority to end life. It's never man from his own desire. Now, there are times when God does delegate that to us, does he not? Right here, in the case of capital punishment, or you read through the book of Joshua, and you're gonna see wars where the Lord commands to go in and take. But ultimately, that authority rests with God and God alone. He says, you do not take life. Life is in my hands, life has value. Man was created in my image before the fall and after the fall, man is still in my image. Life has value, God has clearly shown this to us and we too should place a high value on life. Now up to this point in human history, God had gone from creating man, designing him to live perfectly to live in perfect harmony and fellowship with him, to obey his commands and, and only to see man fall flat on his face, failing to live up to his standards. And that was just Adam. <laughs> From there, it only gets worse. So we got to go back to chapter 6. It says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was evil, only evil, continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. I think there's another danger here. Maybe it's just my tendency, but possibly yours as well and and maybe the original audience also, this this thought, this creeping thing that does God really truly value life? The moment things don't go according to his plan, is he just going to strike everyone down again? And we have the advantage of seeing a lot of the rest of redemptive history, but the original audience, the the Israelites, that's all they see. Things didn't go according to plan, man sinned, and the Lord blotted out everyone. He wiped everyone away. And that brings us to our second point, the covenant. Covenant. God reaffirms his commitment to all mankind by establishing his covenant with Noah. His descendants and all living creatures. So the command, the covenant is with Noah, his descendants, and all living creatures. And what does God promise in there? He promises to never again destroy by flood. Now, I've got a definition of covenant. Um, this is kind of cobbled together from a few sources. Uh, it's not exhaustive, but I think it's helpful as we look at covenant today. Covenant is a relationship between two parties who make a binding promise to one another in order to achieve a common goal. Can be mutual, could also be between a greater party and a lesser party. Frequently, it's accompanied by oaths, signs, and ceremonies. A covenant will include responsibilities and commitments, though they are personal in nature, so kind of unlike a contract. And all covenants we see in Scripture include descendants, and that's important. We see that a little bit later. Marriage is an example of a covenant. A man and a woman promise themselves to one another common goals together of serving the Lord and possibly raising a family. A marriage is an example of a covenant. And covenants are significant markers throughout scripture, and there's only five of them that are really brought out between God and man. The first one here that we see is God's covenant with Noah. There's later his covenant with Abraham, the Mosaic covenant with Israel, covenant with David, and then there's the new covenant, and those make up the five specific covenants that we see between God and man in scripture. And chapter nine gives us the full expression of this covenant with Noah, but it's first mentioned in Genesis 6:18. but I will establish my covenant with you And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your son's wives with you. And then, and I'm paraphrasing, bring every living creature with you. In today's passage, it says, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you. As many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. So this covenant is interesting. It's both cosmic and it's narrow at the same time. The cosmic nature of it is it's for the whole earth. It's for all created earth. The narrow part is it's by flood. I'll never destroy the whole earth, but the promise is to not do so by flood. This covenant with Noah contains elements of, of common grace. Every living thing is included in this, has value in God's eyes. The blessing of the Lord is evident in the covenant. And this covenant also too, is a it kind of looks forward. It's a foreshadowing of what's to come because God here makes a covenant and he requires something only of himself, right? He promises to never again destroy by flood. You look forward to the new covenant. He fulfills both sides of the promise. He's the giver and he fulfills The covenant in the person and work of his son Jesus. He requires in the new covenant the perfect sacrifice for sin, but we're incapable. God planned from the beginning to send his son, the perfect spotless lamb, to be the sacrifice for sin, thus fulfilling both sides of the covenant his part and our part. Now, finally, we're halfway through the passage or so and we get to the title of our sermon, right? The first sign. It's about time, Seth. Truly, we are gonna be here till lunch, right? Um, In verse 12, starting verse 12, and God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I've established between me and all flesh on the earth. And that sign is what? It's the bow, or we would know it as the rainbow. This marks the first covenant between God and man. And the rainbow usually, not always, but usually appears after the rain, not before it signaling that the rain has passed, that God can be trusted, that he will never again destroy the flood, and that's what should come back to our mind. There's further symbolism, though, here that I want to look at for just a second. So the Hebrew word here, used for bow, would have been the same word that they would have used for their battle bow. There would have been a warrior implication, connotation to it. So when we gaze at a rainbow, we should be reminded that God has hung his battle bow in the sky. It's a sign of peace for us. The battle bow, it's hung in the sky. Now, my wife and I had a spirited discussion on the couch last night during a commercial of the Ohio State-Penn State game of, is the battle bow, it's hung in the sky, right? And you can imagine the, the wooden part of the bow as the bow on the top. Is it, is it drawn or is it slack? And I don't know, right? I don't know if the bow is truly drawn or slack. I'm not sure that's critically important to it. But consider the direction that it is pointed though consider the direction it is pointed. It isn't pointed down at humanity. Imagine a bow aiming back up. It's instead pointed back up at God. And I think that's significant. The fact that the next time the battle bow is used with cosmic implications, it will be aimed back up at God, specifically at his son, who will take the arrow we deserved. He died dying on the cross once and for all, defeating sin and death. Man, think about that the next time that you see the rainbow, that God has literally put his son in the crosshairs. He took the arrow, the punishment that was meant for us, didn't he? It's an enduring sign of God's gentle dealings with us despite every intention of our heart being evil all the time, right? Okay, the covering, our third point. Get to the last section of our passage here. After the flood, Noah becomes a man of the soil. And he plants a vineyard. So right off the boat, you guys know, we just read it, right? Right off the boat, with the hope of a fresh start and the opportunity to lead an ideal society, where do we find Noah? He's drunk and naked in his tent. There's no getting around it. (laughs) Embarrassing, right? Unreal. (laughs) Something I find really interesting, though, about this passage is what's the focal point of the passage? It's actually not Noah's sin, is it? It's more Ham's sin. It's Ham's sin. Ham finds himself, uh, and he has a choice. He finds no one has a choice. And so rather than covering his father's nakedness, he runs and tells his brothers. <laughs> his brothers refused to bring shame to their father and said they seek to cover his shame. And I think this demonstrates that this new Adam and his family, despite a new start, the same sin nature resides within them. It doesn't, it, it's not simply weeded out by the flood. Noah wakes to find out what happens, and he pronounces a curse on Ham, right? The one who saw him? No, that's not what we see in here. He doesn't curse Ham. He curses his son. He curses Ham's son, Canaan. So the sin of the father, Ham, resonates down through the generations of Ham, just like Adam the sin of Adam resonates down through the generations. This passage uh, spends time comparing and contrasting the actions of Ham with his brothers, Shem and Japheth. Ham glories in the Father or in the shame of his father." He runs and tells his brother, I, "Brothers, I think he wants to make them a party to his own wickedness. But Moses is retelling of these events probably comes close to the Ten Commandments being given to the Israelites. And so the Israelites, the original audience, would have absolutely made the connection that this behavior wasn't just morally reprehensible, it was against the very commands of God. But Shem and Japheth do the opposite. They seek to cover the nakedness and sin of their father. It says it twice, they didn't see him. Ham's sin ultimately leads to a curse against his son, though, Canaan. Canaan being the father of the Canaanites and these are enemies right of the Israelites possibly around the time this was given the Israelites were about to enter the land of the Canaanites (laughs) probably fearful unsure of what's to come and yet this passage would hopefully have drawn them back to God's presence his protection his deliverance through the floodwaters and it should ultimately lead them to place their trust back in him and it should do the same for us for me, I think it's easy to identify with the good guys in the passage. Maybe it is for you too. But I, I, think, I think we probably all are a little bit more like Ham than we care to admit. We're gossipers. Did you hear what he or she did? We glory in the shame and the sin of others. We uncover sin rather than seeking to cover it and address it privately. Now, am I saying in here that we should ignore sin, move on, cover it up so no one else sees it? Heck No. And I'll have to apologize for saying heck later to my children. We don't say that in my house. Heck no. But I have a question, though, for you. Are you more willing to avoid the conflict than to address the issue with a brother or sister? Are you more willing to avoid it than address it? Or are you more willing to gossip about it behind their back rather than go to them and confront it? Because the Bible's really clear. I mean, Matthew 18 has a, a crystal clear, like, this is what you do. If your brother sins, go and tell him. And if he repents, you've gained a brother. If he doesn't, bring someone else. Bring the elders. Bring the whole church. Ultimately, I think you even said it before, that's part of our membership agreement, that we would be confronting one another in sin with the idea being that there would be repentance and restoration. That's the idea. Repentance and restoration. Do you see the importance of sin in this passage? The all the time evil intentions of man's heart ultimately lead to the Lord destroying the earth. Then Noah fails, then Ham fails, and an entire bloodline is cursed. So don't take it lightly. Please don't take it lightly. I think this should also draw our minds back too to the garden. Before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve were naked and they felt what? No shame. But the moment they sinned, they knew they were naked and they felt shame. And so what does God do? He covers them. He covers their nakedness. He covers their shame. I think God used the ark to show that sin lives within all man because he found one that was righteous in his generation, but he was not perfect. He was not without sin. God removing Noah from a sinful and broken world didn't rid the world of sin, did it? Even Noah, who finds favor with the Lord, was utterly sinful. Now, before the flood I I don't know I'm speculating did Noah blame his surroundings for sin I, I don't know Lord it's all around me now he's without excuse though isn't he and right after he's off the boat starting over his sin and the sin of his son dramatically impact the events of human history right same is true for us friends man we are utterly sinful even at our best we could never never reach the perfect standard that God requires to get to him in just the same way, we are without excuse, and I think we have to be honest about, with, with ourselves about that. But there's hope. So I want to wrap it up here, I promise. <laughs> I want to take you back to the sign, the sign that points forward. Because one day, God would save his people, but ultimately, though, this time. He doesn't save through a wooden boat used for a time against a temporary threat. But this time, it's through a cross, and he uses it once and for all to defeat sin and death. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So when we trust in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, his blood covers us. We stood in the nakedness and shame of our own sin, but he took the arrow meant for us, and he covers our sin and shame, and that is amazing news. Now, the already but not yet nature means we still are going to face difficulty, trial, suffering, physical death, but we can look upon the ultimate symbol of God's enduring love for us and know that one day, we're gonna rejoice with him in heaven, those that are in him. Young Israelites hearing this would have grown up wanting to be in Shem's tent. They would, want it, they would have wanted to live in the line of blessing because the Savior ultimately came from Shem's line. They wanted to live in Shem's tent. And now, Shem's tent, this is the best news ever, right? Shem's tent is open for both Jew and Gentile, it's the tent of Jesus. All who call in his name, all who repent of their sin and turn to him, will live in his tent in glory with him forever amen amen let's pray father um, man I I I pray that whatever words I used up here Lord um, would be useful and encouraging to my brothers and sisters with me here this morning Lord would you speak uh, through your word and through me convict us father of our sin for no doubt we are far more sinful than we care to admit But, Lord, the good news is that through Christ, you've covered our sin. You've covered our nakedness, our shame. And we can stand before you in perfect righteousness. What wonderful news, Father. I'm grateful for this morning. I'm grateful for these friends. Um, Yeah, be with us, Lord. We love you. In Jesus' name, we pray all of these things. Amen.